Herzlich willkommen to another episode of the Botchtube podcast. My name is Luke Morgante. And in today's episode, we sit down with University of Chicago Professor Tara Zara to discuss the ideas of globalism and internationalism as they developed from the early 20th century through the interwar period and beyond the world wars. Individuals like Hungarian pacifist Rosika Schwimmer or major events like the Spanish flu helped to illustrate the interplay of anti-global and globalist sentiments from the era. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Tara wonderfully connects these past events with events from today to help us better understand where we may be going and what we could possibly do different to prevent the same issues from reoccurring. All right. Hello, Tara. Hi. Nice to finally get a chance to talk to you. Today we are kind of talking about your newest release, Against the World, Anti-Globalism and Mass Politics Between the World Wars. I was hoping to start off that you could give uh, listeners kind of an insight on what the book is about. And there's two major distinctions you made early on between what globalization is and internationalization. Could you kind of explain that as well? Sure. Um, well, this is a book that really um, looks at all of the different ways that people basically revolted against the what historians tend, and economists tend to think of as the first major wave of uh, globalization toward the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And while um, Globalization, in, in some sense, always produces its own reaction immediately. Um, these anti-global feelings, sentiments, policies, politics really came to fruition um, after the First World War. So that's where the book focuses. And it looks at how people on the far right, on the far left, in democracies, dictatorships, small and large states, um, all in very different ways uh, mobilized a, against globalization, uh, against the world in, in various ways. Um, and I do think about two related strands here. One is, one is globalization um, as we think of it in terms of the um, accelerating mobility of people, of migration um, and goods across international frontiers. Um, the other is internationalism or internationalization, um, which I'm thinking of more as a as a political movement, um, an, an ideology that um, seeks out international cooperation and collaboration to solve global problems. And the the term globalization, when you hear it nowadays, I feel like it's usually used in a modern context. And even though the, the early 1900s aren't that far away, I'm curious what the origins of globalization as an idea were and how people kind of thought about it back then versus now. Yes. Um, so one of the challenges of this of writing this book as a historian is that you couldn't you can't really go to an archive and say, I'll have the globalization files, please, because it's not a term that people would have used um, in the early 20th century. They would have talked about, um, in, in various languages, the global economy, um, autarky, self-sufficiency, 
internationalism, uh, nationalism, and so on and so forth, but they wouldn't have used the term globalization itself, even though the processes they were talking about um, are very much what we would call globalization today. The term globalization itself really came um, into widespread use in the 1990s um, after the collapse of communism. And um, at the time, I think it was often seen as a kind of teleological inevitable force that, you know, um, McDonald's was in Russia and the World Wide Web was bringing people closer together. Um, migration was um, increasing, global trade was increasing, and a lot of people thought that this was a process um, with no end, that, you know, almost um, with a kind of force that could, an end of history kind of moment, it couldn't be stopped. Um, I think we now know from perspective of the present that that's not the case, uh, but it was certainly um, the viewpoint for a while in the 1990s, and that's really when the term um, was most widely used. So you break the book up into a few different sections. Um, there's kind of the pre-World War I uh, era, which you note is a, a prime time compared to the following centuries for internationalists like Stefan Zweig. And you also discuss the stories of Rosika Schwimmer. Um, how exactly was an internationalist movement or were internationalist movements able to flourish more prior to World War I? And kind of how did that change? Right. So the the period leading up to the First World War really, as you called it, the prime time of internationalism, it really was the heyday. Um, this was a time when there was ever more international congresses and organizations and attempts to coordinate um, things like time internationally, as well as standardize um, measurements, uh, all sorts of efforts that really sought to bring the world together. Um, the First World War really was a, a, a breaking point for all of that. Um, it's true, of course, that there were discontents um, and rumblings and movements against globalization already before the World uh, Wars, particularly in the form of um, increasing tariffs and anti-migration legislation. But the First World War was still a major breaking point. Um, first of all, it pretty much stopped transatlantic migration for the years of the war. People just couldn't cross the ocean. It wasn't safe. It wasn't possible. Uh, second, the European states that were, you know, we talk about internationalism before the First World War, but that internationalism was really a very elite European phenomenon. In fact, it didn't really involve all of the countries of the world. It involved... Um, very few European countries, the United States, and, um, you know, exceptionally a few others. So, you know, these were the countries that were suddenly at war with one another. Um, and uh, any kind of international cooperation at that moment was seen as almost treasonous. Um, and the, the people who could try to continue that kind of international dialogue during the First World War were often branded um, as treasonous. Um, at the same time, there were growing restrictions on mobility. So during the First World War, um, states introduced passports. Many states introduced passports for the first time and visas 
before the war, um, you could pretty much, if you had the means, of course, um, and uh, the the opportunity you could travel without any kind of documents, uh, formal documents. Um, and that all ended during the war. It was introduced really as a security measure, but um, and supposed to be temporary, but it wasn't lifted when the war ended. So it was the end of um, the era of relatively free mobility. And it was also a significant breaking point because um, states started to use trade as a weapon of war. So most famously, the Allies implemented a naval blockade against the Central Powers and essentially deprived civilians of food supplies and basic necessities in the process. Um, and historians still debate the extent to which the Allied blockade significantly altered the course of the war, um, how many deaths exactly it caused. But um, there's no question that Germans and Austrians in particular at the time blamed the Allied blockade for the starvation of millions of people. And that intensified a um, demand really among many people and government officials and experts to increase the ability of states to produce their own food um, and their own basic necessities so that they could not, again, be starved into, into submission in, in, in a time of war. Yeah, it seems really interesting that the, because the idea of globalization, maybe at face value, seems like this utopian, almost ideal process where eventually everyone's going to be kumbaya and holding hands and stuff. But as we've seen the process kind of develop in the early 1900s and even now, it leads to a lot of exacerbated inequalities. You, you just mentioned it was quite Eurocentric at the time. A lot of the internationalists were promoting their free travel between these countries, but the increase in mobility in a lot of places led to uh, poor working conditions and so forth. What yeah. what what parts of the process of globalization are harmful and to what extent do you think that the the reactions against it throughout throughout your book were reactions against a incapability to properly regulate a more globalized world? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think um I think the question of, of when, where, and how globalization is harmful depends entirely on your perspective. And I think, um, it, you know, it was very clear already in the late 19th and early 20th century that globalization had its winners and its losers. Um, so, um, for example, uh, you know, and this is no surprise, uh, many small shopkeepers and artisans uh, felt very threatened by the rise of um, large multi, uh, I guess, international industry, um, by the rise of the department store, which was also associated with globalism and globalization, um, and by foreign competition, which threatened to put them out of business. And that's a kind of a very familiar story in the contemporary world. Um, migration also had its, I guess, winners and losers. Um, some migrants 
went overseas and and thrived and prospered, but others really didn't. Um, and you know, faced exploitation, illness, death. They were separated from their loved ones. Back home, there was a lot of anxiety about the separation of families um, and the consequences for home countries of this mass exodus overseas. And and that that was not necessarily seen as a it wasn't necessarily seen as a positive thing when um, large parts of your population, especially the young and the healthy, the workers, um, were leaving to find work elsewhere. Um, and basically, uh, you know, the what we now know today was true then that that globalization tended to exacerbate inequalities both domestically and uh, globally. So people were aware of that already at the time um, and mobilized against it. Sometimes they didn't mobilize against the right enemies. So for example, I think Jews often were scapegoated um, as, uh, you know, they were, they were scapegoated as emblems of globalization. Um, you know, typical anti-Semitic propaganda at the time portrayed Jews as controlling international finance as being cosmopolitanism and global without any sense of national loyalty and so on and so forth. Um, so I think, you know, it was often the case that people had anxieties or resentments about globalization that were expressed in, um, in ways that were not productive at all and that were very harmful. There were um, a lot of victims of these anti-global movements. Um, but the fact that globalization um, did not benefit everyone equally, that I think is is today and, and was then undeniable. Would you say that globalization is a natural process? It seems a lot like with um, like when a new technology comes out, like the like the cell phone, and there's this boom in communication. Obviously, there's a lot of good that comes from it, but there's also a lot of negatives that have to be dealt with, and legislation has to be made. But globalization is a little less tangible than a new technology because there's so many different aspects to it and so many different ways to look at it. So right. would you say it's a natural process or is it something that we kind of guide through our policies? It's absolutely something we guide through our policies. And, um, you know, I think there's a kind of there's, of course, a strand of economics that sort of would see globalization as natural and anything um, anything that stops it as unnatural uh, political interference. But if you look back to the long history of globalization and free trade, I mean, one thing you can say, see, for example, is that, um, you know, the, the British Empire was kind of the um, great, the, the most significant upholder of free trade globally in the 19th century. But that wasn't um, something that everybody voluntarily agreed to. It was really imposed often through force um, by the British Empire on its colonies, right? Um, and you can see really clearly throughout the late 19th and early 20th century that policies like free trade and migration 
um, or, or more free migration are the products of political decisions um, and policy decisions that can be easily reversed. Um, and so one of the things that I focus on, I think this goes back to your previous question that I didn't fully answer, is the extent to which um, what was happening in the interwar period was not simply a deglobalization or an end to globalization, but a transformation of the terms on which globalization took place, because that's what a lot of critics of globalization were really arguing for. It's not that they wanted globalization to stop entirely, but they wanted um, different rules, a different architecture. So, for example, um, in Gandhi's India, there was a, a movement for greater self-sufficiency um, for Swadeshi. And, you know, Gandhi was promoting the idea that um, Indians in their fight for, um, for freedom, for independence, should weave their own textiles and boycott foreign goods. Um, but he wasn't an anti-internationalist or an anti-globalist. He was against the form of globalization um, in which uh, India and other colonized people were basically subjected to the exploitation of European powers. So he thought that greater self-sufficiency in the short term would enable India to participate in an international global community that was more authentic and genuine in the long run, that was not based on exploitation um, and inequality. So could a highly globalized world still have different nations like India and Germany and so forth working together? Or is a highly globalized world typically presented as something with a world government or a much more integrated world system? I don't know that anyone um, ever imagined that globalization would I mean, maybe there was some talk of this in the 1990s that globalization would lead to the end of the nation state or something like that. I don't think um, that was the aspiration of um, many self-professed globalists. Uh, you know, international organizations always were about the coming together of nations, right? They presuppose nations. Um, and likewise, I would say globalization, well, it... it brings or has brought the world um, closer together through more intense communication and mobility. Um, in many ways, what we've seen that is, is, is that um, it's actually also accentuated and exacerbated national difference um, and nationalist tensions. So I, I, I mean, there may have, there were and have been certainly ideals of world government um, some of them very powerful and influential, but the idea that um, nation states were going away entirely, I think very few people believed or invested in that um, idea um, in the last century. Uh, well, one of the most interesting individuals that you discussed throughout the book is Rosika Schwimmer. And mm -hmm. she was born in Budapest, but she could probably be considered more of a world citizen than anyone else. Uh, her travel was quite substantial. She uh, had multiple meetings with basically every world leader at the time, it seemed. Uh, she took a long Atlantic journey, transatlantic journey with Henry Ford. 
Could you kind of explain who Rosika Schwimmer is and why she's important to this narrative? Sure. I, Rosika Schwimmer is a character that becomes, she becomes very central to my story, in part because I think she embodies the story of the rise and fall of globalism. Um, she uh, is, as, as you said, a Hungarian Jewish feminist, pacifist, pacifist internationalist, and she really, um, I opened the book with her, um, her story because before the First World War, she's kind of at the height of her power. She's brought the entire world to Budapest for the International Women's Suffrage Association um, annual meeting. And, uh, and it's a moment when internationalists like Schwimmer are really um, confident that they are on the verge of victory and that globalism will bring more peace and prosperity and progress to the whole world. Um, and then a year later, the world is at war and the delegates, you know, the husbands and fathers of the delegates at, at that feminist international conference are facing each other on the battlefield. Um, and the conference doesn't meet again for five, for at least until the end of the war, but maybe even. So it's, uh, so there's that story. And, and it goes beyond that because of course, after the first world war, well, first of all, Schwimmer engages during the war on this pacifist mission with Henry Ford. She Ford charters a she convinces Ford to charter a, a peace ship to sail across the Atlantic um, and try to convince the Allies to engage in a um, peace negotiation. And that mission basically is ridiculed by the press and ultimately fails. Um, Ford turns against Schwimmer. And, you know, it becomes famously an, an anti-Semite between the wars uh, and a kind of isolationist. Um, and then Schwimmer herself returns to Budapest, where she's targeted first by the communist regime that briefly comes to power in Hungary, and then after that by the far-right uh, Horthy regime. And she basically has to flee Hungary, her homeland. She winds up in the United States, but she never succeeds in obtaining citizenship in the United States because she refuses to pledge to bear arms in defense of the United States, which was a requirement for citizenship at the time. She was a pacifist. Um, and even though she was a woman in her 50s and diabetic and there was, you know, no chance that she would legally ever be allowed to bear arms, you know, for the United States, that disqualified her for citizenship. Um, that case went all the way to the Supreme Court and she lost her appeal um, and died stateless. So uh, she is really emblematic, I think, of the trajectory of globalism and globalist ideals um, in the early 20th century. I thought it was in, one of the more interesting parts was that well, <laughs> it's all interesting, <laughs> but um, I didn't realize that passports were such a recent invention for being able to travel between different countries. This is also the time when the idea of a stateless person comes around. In the book, you describe passports as anti-global items, even though at first I would have thought that they were actually a product of globalization and could be seen as global items facilitating movement of people. But in reality, 
beforehand, passports weren't required. You could much more easily travel. How do these processes come to be and how do you... Well, I think what you're getting at is kind of what's interesting about passports in particular. I can see how you might see them from the contemporary perspective as facilitating mobility. And actually, there was a kind of shift um, in the early 20th century. So before the First World War, um, you know, passports were not necessary. Of course, you know, the, the group of people who were just able to travel the world freely, I mean, that was a small elite. My, but it also did enable mass migration on a, on a huge basis that you needed very little documentation. And, um, and again, that ended with the First World War. You needed, you needed passports to travel. And also at the same time, states like especially the United States really restricted mass migration um, after the First World War to a trickle. Um, and that ended the period of, um, you know, the first great migration, uh, the first great transatlantic migration. However, you know, there was an interesting shift in perspective in the League of Nations um, after the First World War on passports. So initially, the goal of the League was basically to um, revert to the pre-war status quo, to get rid of passports entirely. Um, and France also was very keen on that because they had a still had a very strong need for migrants after the First World War. Um, but the League in general was trying to convince its members, you know, they should get rid of passports. And they quickly realized that that, that was not going to happen, that um, states liked being able to, you know, this was the age of national sovereignty after World War One. Um, and sovereignty and controlling one's frontiers was extremely important to the idea of national self-determination. Um, and so nobody was giving up their passports. So the League actually um, shifted gears and instead tried to standardize the passport regime, which was a big step toward facilitating mobility, because initially after the war, it was a huge mess. I mean, um, you needed a different visa for every country. You needed an entry visa and an exit visa. Um, the rules were constantly changing. There were additional documents required by different states. So, um, you know, think about how right in the immediate aftermath of COVID, as we were coming out of, um, of that crisis, um, if anybody who's listening, you know, attempted to make an international journey before COVID restrictions were lifted. It was like you had to consult three websites to figure out what 10 documents you needed or didn't need for each state. Um, and the rules were changing all the time. And that's a little like what it was like after the First World War, although I think it was even more complicated because you couldn't just consult a website, right? You often would only learn on the spot what you needed or didn't need. So it was a big mess. Um, it was also expensive because getting all of these various documents um, signed, translated, uh, you know, was often costly. It was time consuming. So what the League sought to do um, in the later 20s and 30s was create a more simple standardized passport regime that is more familiar to us today than what existed immediately after the chaos, really, that existed immediately after the war. And with all the periods of immigration, uh, the rises and falls of acceptance of immigration, being from an Italian family on the East Coast, 
Ellis Island was always described to me as this place of opportunity that our ancestors had come to with hope and just hope for a better future. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were also a lot of periods when Ellis Island was a terrifying place for the people arriving, uh, whether they knew it or not. There were periods when the immigrants to the United States were praised, but there were also periods where we wanted very little to do with new immigrants. Uh, And then on the other side of the pond, there were countries struggling to retain their citizens and enacting policies that would make it harder for their citizens to emigrate away. To what extent is immigration impactful to a country? Uh, to what extent is it something that countries should embrace? Because you you know that when immigration had gone up in the United States, there tended to also be a lowering of the daily wages for the workers. But other times it also bolstered the workforce and helped in many other ways. So it's a confusing topic. It's a confusing topic, and I don't think I'm the right person to make policy prescriptions. I mean, I'm sort of dodging the question in a way, but um, I think I have less perspective uh, on whether or I mean, I see immigration as a as a net positive, um, even if there are certainly winners and losers. I think governments can take um, measures to alleviate the pain that immigration may cause to um, local workers um, and that the net benefits to the economy are and and to cultures and societies are positive but the the you know the fact that it harms some people is is real and something that I think can't be dismissed at the same time and I guess what's also significant is the extent to which these, feelings and experiences, positive and negative, uh, you know, on the side of migrants and the side of those who are local workers who are already in a, in a place or an industry, I think they all just need to be taken seriously and, and listened to and, and not dismissed because I think what history certainly shows is that anti-global um, sentiments and anti-migration sentiments have real consequences politically and um, socially and economically. Shortly after, or I don't know, you, you correct me if, if the, uh, the influenza pandemic actually started during World War I or shortly after, but to what extent did the so-called Spanish flu impact globalization in that period and what kind of effect did it have in the years following? Right. So I have to admit the Spanish flu is not a topic I was even thinking about for this book until COVID. Um, But as I was sitting at home in April 2020, I suddenly realized that it could not be coincidental that the flu, um, the flu pandemic took place in 1918 and and sort of coincided with the rise of this of these anti-global ideas and policies. And so it was something I um, started to look into. And not surprisingly, um, there was a huge um, upsurge of um, kind of xenophobic and anti-global sentiment associated with the flu. So people immediately recognized, first of all, that the Spanish flu was a product of globalization. The fact that it could 
spread seemingly simultaneously around the world was basically a product of the global nature of the war itself. So it 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 began toward the end of the world war and it spread as soldiers returned home, basically. Um, and it spread in barracks and in other contexts in which, you know, um, and refugee camps, places that uh, men and women were um, packed, living close together uh, on ships, of course, that were transporting soldiers um, at the end of the war. And so people were aware and commented at the time that, you know, disease was a byproduct of globalization. And that kind of fed into a broader um, a broader association, I would say, of migrants with disease that had already um, been festering and widespread and a kind of fuel for xenophobia and anti-migrant policies in the late 19th century. So, for example, the association of Chinese migrants with the plague or Jewish migrants with typhus had um, been used uh, to restrict migration of those groups um, already beginning in the late 19th century. And oftentimes what what became clear is that um, even once the epidemic was over, um, you know, for example, in the case of a cholera or typhus epidemic, the restrictions often remained in place. Um, and the stigmatization of migrants, um, the association of migrants with disease um, or dirt, uh, often remained in place um, and um, really fed into racism and xenophobia and the kind of closing of the closing of borders that we see on mass after the First World War. It was eerily similar. A lot of, a lot of aspects of the book were eerily similar to the times that we are in now, although there's a few key distinctions that I was wondering about. <laughs> With the Spanish flu, obviously it arrived shortly after a major war. Mm-hmm. COVID not necessarily arriving after a major war, but having a similar worldwide impact. Um, another part of the Spanish flu that seemed important was that it targeted generally uh, healthy adult populations, whereas COVID seemed to be more towards the older population population. Uh, the population that wasn't as uh, as much of a part of the primary workforce. Mm-hmm. What kind of connections do you see between the Spanish flu and COVID? And do you ex- do, are there any predictions that you feel you can make because of it? Hmm. Um, I, historians are really bad at predictions. Um, I think the real similar, I, I mean, I think that, the similarities lie mostly in the ways in which the the flu, like COVID, really prompted a closing down of of borders um, and a sort of retraction from society and a, a rise of xenophobia um, in both contexts. I think you're right that the two diseases um, affected populations differently. COVID, I don't know. I think it remains to be seen what the long-term consequences will be. The flu is famous for having sort of disappeared from popular memory, um, only to resurface 100 years later with COVID. It wasn't, it's not something that historians have written about that much or talked about that much. 
So I think it remains to be seen um, whether COVID is similar, whether it's kind of seen as a blip, um, or whether it's seen to have serious long-term consequences for uh, the way we the way we live. You know that the I keep saying you know I got to stop saying that, <laughs> but um, the Great Depression was a key period in the transition from just general anti-global sentiments and the rise of anti-globalism uh, to a period of radicalization of those sentiments. To what extent do you think that the Spanish flu uh, played a role in leaders like Hitler and Mussolini in taking just your casual anti-globalist who wants to make sure that they're still able to keep their farm despite much cheaper alternatives being available across the continent to someone that would be willing to fight in a war? The Spanish flu? Yeah, do, do you think that the Spanish flu was something that led to, or like, to what extent did it increase those sentiments? Or do you think that it was re- relatively limited in its effect on the ability for those leaders to later radicalize these groups? I mean, I would say, I, I mean, if you're if you're talking about um, Germany and Italy, I mean, I think the Spanish flu had an impact in kind of intensifying migration, anxieties about migration and globalization and migration restrictions, particularly in North America, which ended up being the focus of that chapter. I would say, though, in Europe, even though the flu was, um, you know, killed millions of people. Um, the First World War was just much more um, significant as a as a, a mobilizing force um, against globalization, um, and particularly in those in those states that turned to fascism. So I, I mean, in Italy, I, in Italy though, I guess you could say it it all um, everything connects, um, not necessarily to the flu, but Mussolini. Um, was you know famously intent on um, Italy becoming more self-sufficient in the production of food. The battle for grain was one of his big ideological um, programs, and he sought to drain the swamps of Italy in order to make the land more productive. And and you know um, hundreds of thousands of people died of malaria in the process. These were his big sh- sort of showcase fascist projects. Um, and they were tied, of course, to the desire to be self-sufficient in food production in the case of um, war. But they were also a product of the closing of the world's borders, because before the First World War, millions of Italians who were underemployed or impoverished had basically um, sought their fortune abroad. They'd left the country and gone to the United States or other places um, after the First World War, that was no longer possible, um, in part because of laws passed in the United States. Um, some, I think, at least, uh, you know, helped along by the Spanish flu, but by the broader current of um, anti-globalism and, and xenophobia um, that saw Italians and East Europeans as racially inferior. And um, so now those Italians had no place to go. You didn't have that release valve. Um, And so the other um, driving force behind these 
big schemes to um, resettle Italians on the land and make the land more productive is that they that Italy actually needed some place to put these unemployed workers and and people who previously would have emigrated. So they turned to what they called internal colonization um, as an alternative to emigration abroad. So I would say that's the major connection there. What exactly is internal colonization? Yeah, internal colonization was this idea that um, instead of sending your, you know, the best and brightest of your youth and your workers um, overseas to, uh, you know, work in the factories and plantations of the Americans, that you should instead use them internally to colonize your own homeland. And in Italy and in, and in Austria and in Germany, what that meant practically was trying to resettle unemployed workers on the land where they would increase the nation's agricultural production, enabling greater self-sufficiency in the production of food or autarky. Um, and they would also, this would also provide a source of employment and self-sufficiency for the workers individually who were supposed to basically grow all their own food for their families. Um, and so it was really seen as an alternative both to emigration and in some cases to former formal overseas colonial settlement. The title of your book is Against the World, Anti-Globalism and Mass Politics Between the World Wars. What exactly are mass politics? Right. Um, well, mass politics, I, I guess I'm using the term in the Shorskian sense. So Carl Shorsky famously wrote this book um, almost 50 years ago about mass politics in Findisiecla Vienna. And what he was talking about at the time was kind of the rise of politics that was happening not simply in parliament, but also in the streets um, that was mobilizing groups of people that were previously excluded from politics, um, including workers, the lower middle class, women eventually, and that uh, relied on um, techniques of mobilization through the press, through propaganda that went beyond the kind of sphere of um I don't know, liberal discourse, I would say. So, um, you know, we think of the rise of, we associate the rise of mass politics with this period at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. But what I think we haven't done as scholars is look at the way in which the rise of those kinds of political um, movements was connected to anxieties about globalization and globalism. And that's really what I was trying to do in my book. And these, the rise of mass politics were uh, accelerated by the enfranchisement of women throughout much of Europe and the United States in the early 1900s. Uh, what kind of role did women play in this newer, uh, more interconnected system? And uh, how, how were the women's votes kind of played to by politicians? The, the role, one of the reasons, um, I, I do try and focus on women a lot in this book. And one of the reasons I do that is because I would say, in general, histories of um, globalization tend to zoom out and look at kind of abstract economic forces um, and not look so much at everyday lives and, and ordinary people and their participation in, in politics. 
In the case of these debates about globalization, women are involved in, in at many different levels. Many millions of women migrated in the early 20th century, and um, they were often, like Jews, I would say, seen as emblems of both the promises and dangers of globalization. On the one hand, many of them were really seeking out new opportunities and freedom. But on the other hand, you know, back at home, there was a lot of anxiety about the exploitation of women, particularly about um, the potential for sex trafficking. There was a lot of anxiety about the effect of their migration on families. And then women themselves, one of the women I look at is, is Raquel um, Pesotti, who becomes Rose Pesota. They become involved um, as labor activists and as feminist activists who sort of um, who lead the struggle against the perceived uh, and real inequalities um, that come with global migration. Um, so I look at the role of women as union organizers, for example, trying to bring women together who speak different languages, uh, you know, um, on the factory floor to um, to fight for better working conditions. That's one way they come into the story. Um, a second way they come into the story is, is that I would say that the anti-global movements, they attracted many women for sure, but they also, I would say, in some ways were quite reactionary. Um, so a lot of the um, forms of politics that I am, uh, the, you know, the political movements that I look at in the book were um, really advocating this kind of return to home production, that workers should go back to, you know, back to the land and produce all of their own food and all of their own clothes and, uh, you know, make their own furniture and so on and so forth. And that kind of labor is very intensive and it typically required the full-time um, work of a wife and um, several children. Um, and that, and I think in many ways was part of the point of these movements, that they would anchor women and families in the land. Um, and it was kind of the opposite of this um, world of global mobility um, that was associated with the pre-war era. Um, and so I think, you know, there were certainly women who um, embraced that that vision, um, but there were also people already at the time who commented that, you know, it was a vision that required, uh, I think one critic said, um, a husky wife with a taste for domestic production and nothing else to do with her time, um, so that the cost was quite high for many women. You mentioned that. Uh, Jews and women were two major demographic flashpoints, I guess, for anti-globalists at the time. Mm -hmm. Why is that necessarily, and what kind of connection is there between the two? Well, I think both Jews, uh, I mean, Jews, as I mentioned before, um, in the eyes of anti-Semites, at least, came to see, seem, seem to be, emblems of globalization. They were, they were um, migrating en masse um, at the time, largely due to persecution and impoverishment. Um, but, you know, they were associated with mass migration. They were associated with mass migration as well because Jews often facilitated migration at the time. They um, served, for example, as emigration agents. They owned hotels and taverns um, and hostels that hosted 
um, migrants. So they were involved in kind of the travel industry, if that makes sense. And they were targeted for that role, um, accused of enticing people to leave their home or, um, you know, um, leading them uh, to migrate with false promises uh, or exploiting them. Like catalysts of the process. Yes, almost. catalysts. They were accused of being catalysts of the process. And then, and then they were also, um, I think, associated with globalization because they were associated with global finance um, at the time. And then finally, they were also associated with, um, by anti-Semites, with um, Bolshevism, another form of internationalism that was detested, of course, by anti-Semites um, on the right. So there are a whole bunch of ways in which um, Jews were seen as emblems of globalism, of cosmopolitanism, and targeted um, on that basis. Uh, women, it's a bit more oblique, I guess. It's not quite as obvious, but, um, but I try to show how the mobility of women in the late 19th and early 20th century really catalyzes, to use your word, uh, anxieties about globalization, um, the kind of increasing mobility of women across national frontiers in particular, um, especially single women, really, um, it really inspires fears of uh, the disintegration of the family, of the kind of of the um, end of religious of religion, so religious um, leaders were often very worried about mass immigration because they felt that people would become um, detached from their religious beliefs abroad, and you know also of course these fears about uh, prostitution and sex trafficking. So um, I would say in in discussions of global migration, um, the migration of women in particular becomes a flashpoint. And uh, it seems few illustrate that better than Rosika Schirmer, who came from a Jewish family uh, and was also a very prolific feminist throughout uh, the West. But she was also from Hungary, which at the time was part of the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the layered sovereignty structure of the empire led to a difference in sentiments towards globalism or anti-globalism after its breakup following World War One, Or do you think that it was still relatively similar to other European and Western countries? Austria-Hungary is a really important case in my book, not only because it's the region that I've been studying my whole life, but also because before the First World War, before its breakup, it was often seen as kind of a world in miniature. Um, it was the largest free trade zone in Europe. It was also, of course, famously uh, multilingual, multinational, multi, sorry, multinational. And therefore, um, its breakup at the end of the First World War was also kind of seen as emblematic of, of the breakup of the world, of the end of globalism. And I would say at the same time that anti-globalism was particularly potent um, in the rump states left, uh, left over after the breakup of the monarchy in, in Austria and Hungary, because these were states that had relied on their imperial hinterlands for industry, for food and agriculture, and were arguing at the end of the world at the end of the war, that they simply were not viable, um, especially given that 
um, the successor states were many of them were at war with one another. And uh, if they weren't physically at war with one another, they were engaged in tariff wars. So um, I think that these concerns about the breakup of the global economy were really, really powerful in those successor states. So for the final question, I actually wanted to mention one of your quotes from the book, which I thought was fantastically, on one hand, terrifying, on the other hand, once again, hopeful. (laughs) But uh, at the end of the intro, you say, when the Second World War ended, global leaders renewed their efforts to create more robust and inclusive international institutions to bring about a more stable form of globalism and globalization. Whether or not they succeeded remains to be seen. How do you think they have done so far? Well, I mean, you know, I was a bit oblique in in that ending. I, I, you know, I think that the efforts that were made at the end of the Second World War to reform and transform the global economy were significant and important. Um, And that's one reason why if you asked me, like, you know, about similarities and differences between today and that and the interwar period, you know, a lot of things are different because of the interwar period because of the anti-global movements of the interwar period and the attempt at the end of the second world war to rebuild and restructure the global economy. Um, We have the United Nations as a result, the Bretton Woods agreement of course did not last, but it also, but it did create um, structures like the world bank and the IMF that at least in theory were supposed to try to reconcile the, um, goals of uh, economic development with participation in the global economy. We also have, uh, in many countries, uh, still have, at least to some extent, um, welfare states that attempt to soften the blow um, and um, to reduce the instability that's caused by business cycles that are often global in nature. So there have been a lot of transformations made to both national and and global economic structures that attempt to address some of the weaknesses of the interwar system. Um, When I say remains to be seen, you know, a lot has changed since the Second World War. And I think the sort of neoliberal turn of... um, since the 1970s has seen a lot of those protections um, eroded, right? Uh, The sort of erosion of the welfare state um, and the kind of reduction of the imposition of of neoliberal reforms on developing states by organizations, by like the World Bank and IMF and so on and so forth. Um, Now I think we're at another inflection point. Um, I think there has been another kind of anti-global revolt, uh, different, of course, in many ways from the previous one, but nonetheless, I think potent. And so I think we are at another moment where there might be potentially some serious um, reforms and a rethinking of kind of the architecture of globalization, hopefully for the better. So that's a kind of, um, I meant it to be a kind of hopeful ending uh, in the sense that there is nothing inevitable about globalization and about the ways in which global entanglements and connections are structured. 
they this is a product of political decision making. Um, and so I think there is hope to kind of create a, there still is hope to create a more fair um, and stable form of, of globalism and globalization today. Well, with that, thank you so much for being on the Butch Deeper podcast. I greatly enjoyed your book. If anyone listening would like to get their own copy, it is called, once again, Against the World. Whoops. It's called Against the World, Anti-Globalism and Mass Politics Between the World Wars. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me again. Bye.